This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joytha Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The specter of technological advancement often looms large over workers who feel either that they're being replaced by machines or are being forced to work faster for less pay. But despite the prevailing anxiety about technology leading to mass unemployment, there are also ways in which technology can and does improve working conditions. For example, for workers with disabilities, technological advancements have opened up previously unavailable options for remote work and accessible job functions. It's clear that the consequences of always creeping automation are complex and not readily determined to be helpful or a hindrance. In fact, businesses, workers, and society is grappling with technological change. Today, we discuss technology and the future of work. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Juhita Gupta. My guest today is economist Jim Stanford with the Center for Future Work. And Jim is the co-author of a new study, Bargaining Tech, Shaping New Technologies to Improve Work, Not Devalue It. He joins us today from Vancouver. Jim, hello and welcome to the program. It's really good to have you with us. Thank you so much, Joita. I'm really glad to chat with you. So off the top, when we start to read your study, you make a reference to the movie The Terminator and this idea that technology is really calling all the shots. But in the paper and in the study, you take a very different look at technology. So how do you conceptualize technology itself? Well, I, I kind of make jokes about the, the Terminator, the famous movie where the, <laughs> the robots land on Earth from outer space and, uh, you know, try to take over the place. Uh, but I think this idea that uh, we live in a world that is determined by technology is quite wrong. Uh, technology, after all, had to be invented by someone. It was invented by human beings uh, and conceived and engineered, and the robots were manufactured and operated by human beings. So we are still in a world where humans call the shots. The question is, which humans and what decisions are they making and in whose interests uh, are they being made? And uh, in terms of the impact of technology on work, uh, that is my main my main point, is to say, you know, we could use technology in ways that lift up people, that improve living standards, that uh, make jobs easier, that make tasks more accessible, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, or we could use technology in different ways, that lean and mean production, that uh, degrade jobs, that extract a little bit more profit uh, out of uh, out of workers. And um, the the choice is ultimately a human choice and a social choice. Mm. Of course, your your study is called Bargaining Tech. And so it is a study that looks at the ways in which unions are dealing with technological advancements in the workplace. What about the majority of Canadians or the majority of workers who are not unionized? To what extent would you say your findings would relate to them? Oh, that's a really important point, Joita, especially because the share of workers uh, in Canada who have the protection of a, a collective agreement and a union representative, uh, that share has been gradually declining. It's uh, about 30% now, about 30% of workers uh, are covered by a union contract. So that means the other 70% in a way are on their own. Now, um, what happens in union workplaces can have a spillover impact on the rest of the economy uh, because, of course, 
you know, workers in non-union uh, uh, firms look at what union workers are getting and, you know, to some extent uh, wish they could have some of the same protections and some of the same benefits. And employers will watch what's happening because um, many of them don't want their workers to form a union. Uh, so they'll try and, you know, meet the standard of the union, if you like, uh, as a way of, um, you know, giving workers some benefit, but without actually having a union to deal with in, in the workplace. Uh, so there can be a spillover effect there. That's important. Um, but one of our main conclusions is that uh, if you want to have technology introduced in a more collaborative way with, you know, consultation and discussion and negotiation, we are going to have to do something about the fact that most workers don't have any forum uh, for that to occur. Most workers don't have a formal uh, structure, a union representation, uh, any kind of formal voice, if you like, in the workplace. And so some of our recommendations are aimed at uh, trying to extend those rights to a broader share of Canadian workers. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. We'll sort of get to recommendations perhaps towards the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But many of us have spent the last year working remotely. So we're quite familiar with some of the ideas about technology either making life easy or making life difficult for workers. But beyond the pandemic and the, the reality of the last 12 months, have you seen trends in the Canadian economy that might suggest that automation and technical advancements are maybe on the rise and that workers are getting sidelined or displaced because of it? Um, the story is actually a bit more complex and a bit more nuanced than, hmm. than what we usually hear in, in public discourse. You know what? We see these amazing things on YouTube videos that robots can do and trucks that can drive themselves and, and things like that. And we say, wow, are there going to be any jobs left at all? But mm -hmm. uh, the sort of things that you see on those, on those videos are, are things that can be done in controlled laboratory experiments uh, are not really generalizable to the economy as a whole. Um, and we are seeing, if anything, a very surprising slowdown uh, at the kind of, you know, ground level of the economy in the amount of investment that companies are making in new technology and robots and automation uh, and mm -hmm. so on. So uh, our report does go through and, and document the surprising fact that businesses are spending less on machinery, not more, and productivity growth has slowing down, not speeding up, which it should be if we were all being replaced by robots, uh, even spending on research and development and software and code, et cetera, et cetera, uh, has also been falling. So we can, we can actually see around us some of the kind of low-tech jobs that are springing up quite a bit in our labor market. You know, uh, people delivering fast food on bicycles. That's not exactly mm -hmm. a high-tech job. Uh, so... The, the kind of the, the rhetoric about, you know, this brave new automated future and the reality of the world that we live in uh, seem to be two very different things. Is there a union or are there unions out there that are just that have just had a blanket opposition to technology in the workplace for fear that their members might lose out on good quality work? Hmm. Well, again, there's a kind of a stereotype, if you like, that, you know, some workers and some unions who are, quote unquote, resistant to change, you know, we'll just try to put sand in the wheels of the whole technological juggernaut, uh, if you like. And, uh, you know, the kind of the stereotype goes back to the old uh, Luddites uh, at the time of the Industrial <laughs> Revolution in England, you know, who threw wrenches into the machinery so that the, the steam engines wouldn't work. And then presumably the, the, the factory would still need more human beings. Um, 
And I, I don't think that stereotype, frankly, has ever been really accurate. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the reality is that um, most unions in Canada have recognized that technology is changing, have recognized that there are costs and benefits. It's not a all or nothing thing. It's not like technology is the villain. villain. It's not like technology is the savior. It all depends on how we use technology and how people are protected as technology unfolds. Uh, so as part of our research, we gathered together examples of collective bargaining that unions had undertaken with employers around many different aspects of technological change. And, I, you know, I found this actually cautiously encouraging. You know, we saw mm. people grappling with technology, not sticking their heads in the sand, not wishing that it wasn't occurring. Uh, thinking about creative and uh, and effective ways to try and share the costs and benefits of technology a bit better. Hmm. Uh, you know, when we think about one of the, the big myths out there, and, and certainly the evidence doesn't seem to support this idea that with the advancement in technology, we're going to see mass unemployment. But the other piece around this is just the quality of work. So, so many of us are now working from home and we feel either that we're being monitored by our employers or we worry about surveillance from the employer, or as some of us worry about health and safety concerns. What sort of implications have you found in your study about, you know, technology and the quality of work that we're all doing? Oh, that's a really good question, Joita. I'm, I'm glad you asked it. Um, it, the debate over the quantity of jobs tends to get most of the airtime, it seems. You know, this, mm. this fear that I think is a bit uh, a bit unjustified that we're all going to be replaced by robots. That just isn't happening, and it's not going to happen. But I am more concerned about the impact of technology on the, on the quality of work. Uh, and again, there's pluses and minuses. You know, you, if you use technology in a sort of uh, a caring way and a respectful way, uh, you could do great things. Uh, you mentioned the, the work from home uh, capacity. If that was done well, uh, then, you know, uh, people people with disabilities, for example, could do their jobs from home. Uh, other people uh, could do their jobs without, you know, the time and cost of uh, commuting and so on. Um, you could use technology uh, to enhance health and safety in workplaces, you know, to eliminate the need for lifting. Uh, heavy things and uh, and other tasks that can uh, do damage. Um, on the other hand, you can have technology used in ways that make work uh, harder, faster, more soulless, more alienating, um, and less uh, independent. You know, for for me, frankly, the the kind of the um, uh, the worst case scenario is uh, some of what we see happening in um, these high tech uh, shipping warehouses that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, grown so much with all the online shopping and everything you know here you've got an incredible pace of work and it's facilitated by technology and digital scanners and algorithms that tell each worker in the warehouse where to go to pick up the next package as quickly as possible and uh, the evidence in terms of physical injury and mental health challenges from that sort of work environment is very very negative so um, this is where I think the around the quality issues and the safety issues is where workers really do need to have a say. If you don't have workers with an organized say uh, and the ability to say, no, this isn't how technology should be used. We have to have some basic limits. We have to have break time. We have to have respect for health and safety issues. Um, Then you could see technology being taken to an extreme that really drives down the quality of jobs.
I'm Joitha Gupta, and with me today is economist Jin Stamford, and we're talking about his new paper that looks at the future of technology and the quality and quantity of jobs and work. Jim, before the break, we started to talk a little bit about the Amazon warehouse and the fact that that platform not only leverages digital technology in a really big way, but frankly exploits its workers. I mean, you've likely looked into this far more than I have, but there are so many accounts of workers facing acute abuse and horrendous working conditions. So previously, you know, we had a, a bit of a chat about whether it matters who owns the technology. Do you think that that is a factor that we need to think through, whether the technology and the advancements are owned by workers or publicly owned versus being owned by private companies or, or just, you know, that, that if we find the technology is sort of concentrated with a few people who make all the decisions? Yeah, the, the ownership is certainly an issue, uh, Joita, and the control of it uh, as well. Like, even if it was all owned by Amazon, you know, one of the biggest companies mm-hmm. in the world now, uh, if they had to jump through a few more hoops before they put some of these ideas into practice, you know, in their warehouses, these things like the algorithm that tell the worker exactly where to go and which arm to lift and which shelf to aim for uh, that makes the job so intense and, and ultimately so dangerous, um, you know, what if they had to negotiate that with a union? You know, Amazon works really hard to try and stay non-union. And one of the mm-hmm. main reasons is because they don't want to have to have any kind of constraint or uh, any any kind of controls or limits on what they can do with that technology. Um, the, the interesting thing I find about Amazon is that it, it in a way uh, counters this idea that the, the future of work with all this technology will be a future without workers. And Amazon is proof positive that that's not the case. You know, Amazon is now the the fifth largest employer in the world, 1.2 million workers. So even though it's a digital business, a high-tech business, it works on the web, uh, et cetera, et cetera, it still needs human beings. So there's no question that human beings are going to disappear. Human beings are still at the center of this whole production chain. The question is, you know, are the human beings going to have any power? And uh, or is it all going to be Jeff Bezos and uh, and the other owners uh, of the of the company? Um, part of the problem too is uh, digital technology seems to have um, a natural concentrating momentum. When one company, you know, whether it's Google or Facebook or Amazon, gets ahead of the others uh, because of its scale and its size and its network, uh, it seems to be able to reinforce its power and grow further. And that tendency mm-hmm. to concentration, uh, I think, can be very, very damaging uh, as well. When you, you know, if you're just dealing with one company that had maybe a dozen warehouses, you could probably think about ways to try and hold the company to account and, and sort of countervail its power a bit. When it's a company like Amazon with thousands of warehouses and, you know, basically controlling single-handedly a huge segment of online business, then it, it just becomes much harder. So that that concentration of private power in these very large technological, almost monopolies, I think uh, you're absolutely right, is a major concern. So one of the arguments that's been made, Jim, is that with the introduction of new technology, we will see reduced working hours. And, you know, yesterday I turned to my husband and I said, are you working less? And he turned to me and he said, are you working less? So what went wrong and, and what do we need to do differently to ensure that the introduction of technology does, in fact, translate into fewer working hours for the people at their jobs? Oh, it's funny that you mentioned this uh, whole idea that there, there once was an idea that our technology would be so efficient 
we'd have so much leisure time we wouldn't know what to do with it, right? And uh, <laughs> that un- unfortunately just has not come to pass uh, at all. Um, we have seen one one interesting and I think uh, problematic trend, which is a a polarization of working hours. Um, if you have a kind of regular full time job, you know you work as many hours as as you did uh, a generation ago. You know. Uh, uh, 40 hours a week, eight hours a day, or something like that, maybe seven hours a day, 35 hours a week. The basic idea of a full-time job hasn't changed. And that is itself um, halting a long-term uh, reduction in our normal working hours. And it used to be you'd have to work seven, hour, seven days a week, 10 hours a day. And over time, that gradually, gradually, gradually got reduced. But about 40 years ago, those reductions stopped. What we did see instead was a, a growth of another whole segment of the labor market that doesn't have access to those sort of normal full-time hours. Um, you know, in Canada, we might call it the precarious labor market, and it's about a third or more of everyone who works. They're either working part-time or on a contract basis or uh, through a labor hire firm, or sometimes they're set up as an independent contractor uh, or even a gig worker. Those are all ways mm-hmm. that people work now but don't have the kind of regular, stable working hours that we once took for granted. And um, that makes it, in a way, more challenging. You've got one group that would probably like less working hours and more leisure time. I know I would. You've got another group <laughs> that needs, needs more working hours, right, in order to pay mm-hmm. the bills and at least more stability in working hours. Somehow we've got to bring those two things together. And technology won't cause it. Um, it will only be because we make a decision as society that we're going to organize work uh, in a fairer, more stable way. But technology could help it. There's no doubt that the productivity potential of new technology should allow everyone in society to work less, maybe a four-day week instead of a five-day week, maybe a six-hour day instead of an eight-hour day, maybe having two-month vacation a year instead of one month a year. All of those things would be possible if we put technology to use in a way that actually enhanced people's lives instead of actually making us work harder, which wasn't the point of it all. Mm. I hope I'm not getting into too many intangibles here, but a lot of people say that if you love what you do, you don't do a day's work. So can technology help with things like creativity on the job, satisfaction on the job? Are these things that can also be improved if we introduce technology into the workplace? Yeah, uh, same same story here, Joita. I think there's pluses and minuses, and you can't say that technology is going to have uh, a positive effect or a negative effect uh, one way or the other. Uh, there are clearly some jobs that are more creative, that are more independent, that are more autonomous because of technology, where you can use your your computer and your software packages and the other equipment to you know really shine, let your creativity flow, put your own stamp on the job. So there's an example of where uh, technology facilitates very creative, very individual, very satisfying kind of jobs. You know, think of designers or writers or other people creating or uh, people using uh, innovation or different types of management skills, etc. On the other hand, you could also have technology that virtually appends the human being to the robot itself and controls what we do so tightly and fragments our work into tinier and tinier little bits that we do over and over and over again. That is an equally possible outcome of technology, and that's what we see on, you know, hyper-speed assembly lines, or that's what we see mm-hmm. in 
uh, some of those warehouse type settings that we were talking about or other situations where human labor, both creative uh, mental and physical labor, is organized and paced and supervised and dictated by an algorithm. And, and those jobs are terrible. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, there's nothing inherent in technology that says we'll go one way or the other. It could go either way, and it just depends on who's in charge, what the technology is being used for, and, and whether other people have a say in how the technology is, uh, is evolving. Speaking of people having a say, what do you recommend unions do to try and ensure that workers have a voice? Well, we did this uh, survey of uh, unions that have tried to negotiate uh, technology-related provisions in their uh, collective agreements. We found uh, uh, 350 examples, actually, in in Canada across a whole range of issues, including notice of technological change, uh, requirement that employers have to uh, discuss it, negotiate it, and consult. Uh, different types of job protections and severance, access to retraining, uh, looking at the health and safety aspects of new technology. A new area in this type of language is around working from home and what are the rules going to be on working from home, the hours of work, who pays for the equipment, uh, who pays for the utilities, the data, uh, issues about surveillance and and that kind of thing. So a wide range of areas. So, uh, you know, again, I was encouraged to see um, unions and employers sitting down, rolling up their sleeves, and negotiating the nitty-gritty of how these technologies are, are going to unfold. So I want to see more of that. Um, the recommendations that we made to unions were that they should uh, think ahead. We found that it's much harder to adjust and um, try to reduce the disruptions of technological change if it's already occurred. You want to have notice and you want to look down the road and see what's happening in one or two or even five years and prepare the workplace for it. So some kind of early warning system where you're gathering data on what types of technology are going to be likely in your workplace and how can we get ahead of it. That was one idea. Uh, I also wanted to see more information sharing among unions. Like we gathered this database of uh, these uh, 350 provisions, and I think we could learn from each other and have networks among uh, negotiators Uh, around the types of provisions that that make sense. A third recommendation we had for unions was on this issue of working time that that we were just speaking about. I'd like to see unions uh, think about uh, ways that make sense in their own industry. It's going to be a very particular kind of industry-specific approach to try to figure out how could we use technology to reduce uh, working hours, whether it's a shorter work day or uh, longer vacation or early retirement. Uh, all the different opportunities to translate new productivity into more time off the job, I, I think would be very beneficial for unions. I agree. I would definitely endorse more time off the job. <laughs> Most Canadians agree with you. The polls are very strong. The <laughs> Canadians would love to see a shorter work week. So you're, you're, you're in the majority on that one. Uh, I'm glad to hear it. In the few minutes that we have left, what about the role of government in this? I mean, businesses and unions operate in a regulatory context. Do you have any ideas about what government can do here? Yeah, I I think that uh, government should recognize that these things do work better when they are negotiated, when there is consultation, when there is collaboration, and then uh, do what they can to make that happen. And uh, we had a couple of suggestions. Uh, One of them, for example, we have an experience in Canada with a, a, a structure called Joint Health and Safety Committees. Any company above a certain size, in most provinces it's above 20 workers, has to establish a permanent ongoing health and safety committee where the employer and the union uh, or 
even just workers, reps, if it's not a union facility, this applies to non-union workplaces as well, have to sit down and talk about health and safety issues in the workplace, identify risks, share new information about best practices and implement them. And it's proven to be very successful in reducing uh, workplace uh, injuries and illness. I think a similar model could work very well in the area of technology. We want to see Canadian businesses get more high-tech. We want to see them innovate. We want to see them bring in new practices. One way to do it would be to expect, as a best practice of doing business, that any company uh, above a certain size is going to have a joint committee where it meets regularly with the workforce to talk about innovations that could occur in the workplace, uh, early notice of new technology that might be coming, training opportunities so that workers can make the best of it, uh, etc., And another way that that could be strengthened would be um, government provides a lot of assistance to businesses in the form of R&D tax credits or subsidized training or uh, grants for new investment in technology. Uh, We suggested that when they do that, they should expect those businesses to engage their workers in discussing and negotiating how the technological change uh, is going to occur. Those are ways that government could facilitate more discussion at the level of individual workplaces. Jim, thanks very much for speaking to us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was economist Jim Stanford from the Centre for Future of Work. And he joined us today from Vancouver, British Columbia. Thanks a lot for listening to the program. Our technical producer is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And of course, I'm Juhita Gupta. I've been your host and the producer of the program. Stay safe, everyone. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.